Let's pray, and then we'll open the word together. Heavenly Father, you are the greatest reality in the universe. There is nothing like you. And when we gather here on a day like this, celebrating the fathers who are here, which we are blessed to have in our own lives, which we are blessed to to be around and enjoy their company, Father, we need to recognize that you are our Father eternally. And that you've given us so much. Every day we get from you is a day from your hand, a, a, a gift from your hand that we should enjoy and savor knowing you are our Father who loves us. I pray that we would embrace that truth today, Father, that we would enjoy each other's fellowship and company, Father, and I pray that your name would be exalted in this word. I pray that you would give us ears, give me ears to hear what you have to say today, Father. And I pray right now for uh, the shooting that happened in New Jersey, not but hours ago, and the one that happened a few days ago in Kingsgate, Father, and the loss that is around those two events, Father. I pray that you would move graciously around the families, the individuals, whoever was involved in those things, and that you would, you would display your love for them in some unique way that they couldn't see before. I'm asking this in the name of Jesus Christ. May your name be glorified today. How are you doing? Are we ready? All right. So last week, we began a series. We took a break from Colossians. We began a series called For King and Kingdom. And we looked in John 17, and we saw that before heading to the cross, Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for all believers. And this prayer had many effects, but one of them, which was really the center of his request for his Father, is that just as the Father had sent him into the world, that he would send his people into the world. They would be ambassadors of him. He would send his disciples. And the reason for that, ultimately, is that the world may know who he is, who Jesus is. So the reason there are Christians in the world right now is so that the world would know that God Almighty sent his Son and bought us our freedom through the cross. So last week we looked at this parable that Jesus gave called the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus was telling us that we need to divorce our hearts from the pursuit of this world and its temporary treasures and instead seek the kingdom because where our heart is, there our treasure will be. And we do this by loving in word and deed. That's really our church's mission, to love in word and deed, to know and show God. And we love this world, especially Kingsgate, if you're here, if you're part of the Kingsgate community, through our words, what comes out of our mouths, and through our actions, what we do with our hands, how we love these people. And today I want to spend some time talking about the word aspect of that, what it means for us to preach the kingdom, not just seek the kingdom in everything that we do, but to preach it, to speak it from our mouths. Uh, But before we begin today, I want to ask a question. This is a heavy question, but I want you to press it up against your life 
and think about the things that are in your life as I ask this. Is it possible to risk too much for the sake of Jesus Christ? Is it possible to risk too much for the sake of his gospel? Is there too great a cost for you and I to proclaim the good news of Jesus? And I want you to think about this because this is not something we can just shoot off the first thing that comes to our head. Think about your job, your friends, your family, your neighbors. Think about your own life. Is there too great a thing to risk for the sake of Christ? This is the question I want sort of sitting over our hearts as we dive into the Word. If you've got your Bibles, please open them and go to Acts 20, verse 18. Acts 20, verse 18. Let me set the table a little bit. Here's the context. Paul, in this passage, has been traveling across, before in previous chapters, been traveling across all of Asia, spreading the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel. And along the way, he's run into hardship after hardship. He's been assaulted. He's been persecuted. Every step of the way, there's been resistance. But as, as Paul makes his way around back to Jerusalem, he's on mission to get back to Jerusalem, he's stopping by each of these churches that he's planted and he's encouraging the leaders there. He's gathering the leaders up and he's saying, I want to encourage you, I want to love on you for a little bit before I go back to Jerusalem. And in this text, he's doing this with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. So he's talking to these Ephesians and he's, it's really a bitter moment for him because he spent a ton of time with them, really close to them. He's grown relationships with them, incredibly close relationships. And He's thinking to himself, we've been through so much together. And I'm confident this is the last time I'm going to see you. What do I want to tell you? What do I want you to remember from me? This is the last opportunity I'm going to be able to pour into you outside of a letter. What do I leave you with? That's where verse 18 picks up. It says this, And when they came to him, Paul, He said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in this text, is recounting to these elders how he lived among them, how he interacted among them, what he did, his mission, how he lived among them. And the question we've got here is, they were with him. Why is he telling them what they already know? And the answer is simple. Paul wants these elders to emulate him. He's articulating how these men should lead the church, how they should live Christian lives, what kind of example they should follow, and what kind of example they should set for the people in their church. And we know this not only because of the inference I just made, but we know this because he begins with this statement. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you. He's admitting to them, you know this already. And then at the end of this passage in verse 34, 
he ends with the same statement. He says, you yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessities. And he commends them in verse 35. Look at verse 35. It says this, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So Paul is saying, I'm showing you what is most important. Why? So that you would do it. So that you would do this. And what is this? According to verse 19, it's how he lived among them. He was serving the Lord every single day he was with them. He says, remember what I did, how I lived. I lived to serve Christ. That was my life every single day. And I did it with humility and I did it with tears, and I did it with trials. It wasn't easy. It was not easy. I was being beaten, I was mocked, I was persecuted the entire time. And why are you being mocked and persecuted, Paul? Why is this happening to you? He tells them, he says, because I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He spent his life declaring this message whether it was in their homes or whether it was public, no matter where it was, his entire life was centered around this message, and this message cost him big time. So what was it? What was so special about this message? He says here, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was declaring to them the gospel. He was telling them about Jesus Paul was saying, I don't care if you're a super religious Jew or the most pagan Greek in the world. Ultimately, there is one name under heaven by which you must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. And so turn from your sin and trust in him. Trust in him. And this message was Paul's life. This message was everything to him even if it came with a heavy cost, as we see in verse 22. Listen to this. He he continues with them. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading me back to Jerusalem. I cannot help but go. I must go. And this is a problem for me. Because the last time I was there, Jewish leadership tried to kill me They tried to kill me. They tried to take me out. And this is the interesting thing about Paul is under the name of Saul, not too long ago, he had once been part of the same exact group of leaders. And he had been given the task to hunt down and eradicate Christianity by imprisoning them, by voting against them when when there was an opportunity to execute them. That was his job. And then one day, all of that got flipped upside down. On the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus and Jesus says, no more. Not anymore. From this day forward, I'm going to take you, Paul, as my own, and I'm going to put you on the front lines. Put you right on the front lines, and you will be hunted by the very same people who you were working with to eradicate Christianity. And now he's going back to Jerusalem 
though he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And the Spirit's made it clear. Imprisonment and afflictions are awaiting you. In fact, they are guaranteed. And Paul already knows this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is only reminding him of this because when Jesus called Paul, he told him, there will be suffering for you. I want you to know what you are coming on board. There will be suffering. In Acts 9, he says, uh, but the Lord said to him, said to Ananias when he goes to Paul, go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knew what he was signing up for. He knew that it wouldn't be easy. And let me tell you, it was not easy for him. 2 Corinthians 11 enumerates Paul's suffering. Paul says he experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times... I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. So when Jesus told Paul that he was going to suffer for his name, he was not lying to him. Paul's suffering would be the very means by which the gospel would be proclaimed. Now, here's the question we should ask when we see a text like this. What could drive a man to endure such ridiculous pain? What could motivate him to do that? And here's the reason why. Paul has seen the value intrinsic in the message of the gospel. And in verse 24, he compares it against his own life. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Those two words, if only, are probably the most precious words in the Bible to me. You are a Christian right now in this room in large part because of what God accomplished through Paul in those two words, if only are not empty words. He says, if only I may finish my course. Paul is saying, I don't account my life of any value. I don't count it precious to myself because I've seen the gospel. I've seen it. And it is infinitely more important that I proclaim this message than I have a comfortable life, than I have a safe life. Paul saw the good news of God and that vision of the gospel fueled his mission to the final day. It drove him to give his life to this the gospel of the grace of God, which begs the question, what in the world did Paul see? Because I don't know about you, but this kind of response to anything does not seem normative to me. What did he see in the gospel? The gospel is a simple concept. Paul saw the creator God who made all things and sustains all things. That God is objectively worthy of being loved, being adored, and being enjoyed. That God is that worthy. He's given us all this stuff. He's that worthy. In fact, every human being was designed explicitly made to do this very thing. But the problem, the main problem in the world is that they don't. They reject that vision of the Creator 
and they only want the things he's made. Like a child pushing his parents out of the way to get the gift that they gave him. And God is dishonored because he's really that worthy of our affection, our adoration, rejection of him. I can't understate this is really the greatest tragedy and crime in the universe. There's nothing worse than that. And it objectively deserves justice, which is complete and total separation from any joy you could have in God. And the Bible refers to that as hell. This is the just response of God, and for all intents and purposes, he should execute this judgment without hesitation. This should be his response to this. But astonishingly, That isn't the first thing that comes to his mind. God does something else. He makes a way for things to be set right. He takes on human flesh. He enters the world. He bears every single sin that would keep his people from being with him forever. Then they are justly punished in him so that we can be set free. That's the gospel. If we trust in that message and in Christ Jesus, we are justified before the living God and we are free to enjoy him, the very reason we exist for all eternity. That's what the blood of Christ buys us. That's what Paul saw. And he says, he looks at that message and he says, that right there is worth dying for. I would give my life for that. So let me ask again, is it possible to risk too much for the sake of Christ? Is it possible to risk too much for the gospel? Do we live our lives as though it is possible to risk too much? And so we kind of have to shelter, get insular, bat in the hatches, not say anything that's going to hurt anybody's feelings or humiliate us or cause frustration, or Do we live our lives as though there is no cost high enough to steal our ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could we say with Paul, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course, my course, the mission that I got from Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, my life is a very small sacrifice, very small sacrifice, objectively, for the other people out there who do not know the hope found in Jesus Christ. It is a small thing for me to spend my life in this way. Paul will not be guilty of squandering his days. He's clearly not hedging the bets. Everything from sunrise to sunset is for king and kingdom. And to nail that home for the Ephesian elders, listen to what he says next in verse 25. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's not going to see them again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. Paul says, you're not going to see my face again. This is the last time you will see me alive. What would you tell someone if, it was the la- if you knew for a fact that it was the last time you were going to see them? You weren't going to see them again. What would you tell them? What was the most important thing you could say to them? Paul's in this experience right now. Would it be something wise? 
Would it be something memorable or nostalgic? Would it be something from your heart, something you kept a secret from them? Paul says, I'm going to spend this time telling you this one thing. I testify to you this day, the last day we have together, Ephesian elders, that I'm innocent of the blood of all. I have no blood on my hands. Why is that, Paul? Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul desperately wants them to know this. He says, I've told you everything I could tell you about Christ Jesus. Everything. I've not lied to you. I've not hidden anything from you. I've declared the entire counsel of the living God, even things that got me whipped and beaten and sent in jail, sent to jail. And I I told you everything about Christ, but let me ask you this. What if Paul hadn't done that? What if he hadn't shared the whole counsel of God? What if he hadn't tested, what if he hadn't proclaimed the gospel in its fullness? What if he refused to because maybe he was just too scared? Maybe he doesn't want to get beaten up today. Maybe he doesn't want to get thrown into prison again today. Would he still be innocent of the blood? I think the answer is no he wouldn't be able to say, I'm innocent of the blood of all because the very reason he's innocent is because he did declare the the gospel. And Paul here isn't simply telling them how I conducted my ministry. He's telling them, listen, this is how you must conduct your ministry. This is how you must live your lives. This is your mission. We as Christians, Paul is saying, are called to live for king and kingdom always. That's our life. It's the only thing that matters eternally. doesn't mean disregard other things does not mean disregard other things. It means we know that in 10,000 ages of years, there's going to be one thing that will matter the most. And he's pleading with the Ephesian elders. He's saying, give yourselves to this. Please give yourselves to this. Do not let this pass you by. Don't waste your life on anything else. And his plea, leaving his mouth on the shores of Miletus, echoes across 2,000 years of history through Scripture, and comes to us. Comes to risen hope. Comes to the churches here. Now, at this point, whether we do it with our mouths or with our hearts or our minds or whatever, the tendency is to say, yes, this was true about Paul. This was true about Paul. He got the mission directly from Jesus' mouth. This is true about the apostles. And this might even be true about professionals like you, Jeremy. This might be true about people who are doing this. This is their call. They feel this is their calling. But this can't be possibly true about every single Christian on the planet that they should proclaim the message of Jesus Christ without any cost. That can't be true. So this is a serious question we should ask. Because if it's not Right now, a question we're going to ask, we'll ask it tomorrow at work. We'll ask it a few days from now when we talk to someone who's an unbeliever and we need an easy off-ramp to say that's not my responsibility, that's somebody else's responsibility. So we need to decide now. And if it's not, we're wasting our time. In Luke 24, before ascending to heaven, Jesus says this to his, his disciples. He says, Thus it was written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then he says, You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus says, this is the mission. This is your mission, disciples. Repentance for forgiveness of sins needs to be proclaimed to every single nation in my name. Every single nation. The gospel must be preached to every people group, every ethnicity on the planet. And then to make it clear, he says, you, you people, are my witnesses. You're witnesses of these things. But don't do anything until you've been clothed with power, which is exactly what he says in Acts 1. He says, Acts 1a, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he's telling them, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth, and you will go out when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be clothed in power. Now, here's the deal. What happens in the rest of the book of Acts, from chapter 2 to chapter 28, is that the Holy Spirit falls on every single human being who believes. Everyone. No one misses the Holy Spirit. And all of them proclaim the gospel, not only uh, professionals. Acts 8.4 says, as the church was scattered and persecuted in Jerusalem, they all went about preaching the word. All of them. Philip, Prissa, Aquila, they all preached the word. In John 17.15, Jesus prays to his father, like we said earlier. He says, I'm not asking for you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking that. He's talking about us, risen hope. I don't want you to take risen hope out of this world. John 17, 23 tells us why. That the world may know. That they might know the one thing they need to know more than anything else in the world. The gospel of God's grace. So looking at this gospel with Paul, do we see it with his eyes? What he saw. Do we believe it enough to risk anything for it to be proclaimed? And when I say believe it, I I really mean believe it. If this is false, like I said earlier, we are wasting our time. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why are we wasting our time with this? But if it's real, if the gospel is actually true, God actually did this in human history, then what would it mean for us not to talk about it? What would it mean for us not to say anything about it? David, in Psalm 40, has this beautiful song that he's singing. And I want you to listen to the words in a specific part, words in context to what we've been talking about. David has been delivered by God in his steadfast love. Listen to how he responds. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Is that true of us? Is that true of me? Have we told the glad news of deliverance? Have we spoken of God's faithfulness? Has God been faithful to us? Has God given us stuff? Has God given us the greatest thing through the gospel? Has he shown us steadfast love in the gospel? And the question is now, do we speak of it when he asks? Or have we restrained our lips? 
Have we hidden God's deliverance in our hearts and not shared it with anyone? Have we lived lives that conceal God's steadfast love from the eyes of others? This is not a guilt trip. Please do not get this as a guilt trip. This is not condemnation at all. I know this is heavy. I'm spurring us on. I'm spurring me on in this. Do we believe the gospel is really as good as this book says that it is? Do we believe that? Do we know that to be true? I think sometimes we think of evangelism as simply trying to convert somebody to Christianity, like a change of hats. Stop being Muslim, atheist, and become a Christian. Stop doing X and do Y. And we think that's spreading the good news. That's spreading the gospel. That's not good news at all to someone who's not a Christian. That's simply changing hats. And I've already told you that justice, because of what we've done with God, is eternal punishment. The appropriate response of God is not not love, necessarily. The appropriate response should be judgment. But God, in his grace and his mercy, shows us that his first response is something that no other religion has. He gets down into our lives and changes us from the inside. He takes on all of our sin and pays for it. This gospel does what no other religion or worldview can possibly do. And here's the thing. Human beings were made for joy. We were made to experience joy. It's woven into the very fabric of our being. That's why we spend our lives, and I'm assuming you guys do, pursuing things that you enjoy pursuing things that please you. And the greatest tragedy in the world is that the one place we should have our joy placed, the highest and best thing, is ignored. That place is God, the one for whom we were made. Now, God's designed us for joy. And that joy, the highest possible joy, is experienced in Him. The gospel is not an invitation into a new religion, mainly. It's not an invitation into a new worldview, mainly. The center of the gospel is that the gift of the greatest joy in the universe is only found in Christ Jesus. Do you want to experience the highest joy for eternity? Ephesians 2 calls this the immeasurable riches of Christ. Psalm 16 calls it fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's what being in the presence of God is. That's what the gospel points to. This is why Paul can look at his life and say, I have no value in my life compared to that because I see the eternal weight of glory that awaits me. And I say, the pleasure in this world, the joy in this world is nothing compared to being with my king forever. We were made, all of us, our eyes were made to see his glory, to embrace who he is, to enjoy him for who he is. And the call of the gospel is not a call to change hats. It is a call to the highest possible joy. We're not inviting someone to a new set of rules or beliefs mainly. You are inviting them to the greatest possible delight a human being can have forever. And that joy didn't come with a cost, without a cost. It came with a heavy cost, the heaviest cost imaginable, the infinitely worthy blood of Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God. It was the only thing that could ransom us, the only thing that could ransom us from great judgment to great joy. <clears throat> so when, when you think about cost, 
Paul saw this. He saw what Jesus Christ gave on the cross. He saw it, and he said, I will go up there with him. I will live my life in such a way that I will spend my life for the sake of the kingdom. I will give everything for this. Everything else is small compared to this. There is a story. Anybody know the story of the Moravian brothers? The Moravian brothers? Okay, great. This will be new for all of you. <laughs> um, some claim that, claim that this story was embellished um, by retellings. Nobody knows for sure uh, what's in, whether it's entirely true. It's true to some degree. Whether it's entirely true or whether retellings have kind of crafted certain things about it, we don't know for a fact. What I do know is that the spirit of the story is 100% true because I see it in Paul and I see it in a myriad of Christians throughout the ages. Um, and that alone makes it worth me telling you with that caveat. In 1732, Johann Leonhard Dober and David Nishman in Hermhut, Germany, uh, were two young men who had their futures ahead of them. They could have done anything they wanted with their lives. And the problem with that is that the thing that gripped them most was the gospel. They didn't want to do all these other things. They wanted to do something for the sake of Christ. The gospel is what gripped them most. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificed himself for sinners, paid with his own blood to free men and women from sin and certain punishment. That's what gripped them more than anything else in the world. And they would see, on a daily basis, ships coming in through the river system. And they would see on those ships, they were the ships of white men, they had captured Africans and they were bringing them over to the, West, uh, the Danish West Indies to be enslaved into hard labor. And they saw that and it broke their hearts. It broke their hearts. Men and women made in the image of God who would not only live in pain and suffering for the rest of their lives, but they'd never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest news in the universe. And when these two brothers attempted to gain access to the slaves so that they could talk with them and, and speak to them about Jesus, they were denied. They had no access to the slaves. The only way they could get access to the slaves is if they did something. They made a fateful deal to sell themselves into slavery. And so they did. They sold themselves into slavery, and as the ship carries them away, their loved ones are on the shore weeping. These are just boys, young men. The Moravian brothers cry out, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. In other words, we're going out there because we want Christ to get everything he paid for, every single one that he paid for. And there are some in this number that he bought with his own blood. Even if it costs us our freedom, this must happen. This story, whether or not you've heard it before, may sound familiar to you because it's not the first, someone, first time someone sold themselves into slavery to rescue other people. Paul in Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant. That word servant is literally doulos, slave in the Greek language. Taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ took the form of a slave in order to free everyone who was enslaved. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he sold himself into slavery in order not only to preach the good news, which is what the Moravian brothers were doing, but to secure the joy on the other end of that news. That's the gospel. The cost that Christ paid shows and displays the extraordinary love of God. This is what Paul saw. This is what we need to see. And that's worth talking about. This kind of love is worth talking about even at great cost. So what I want us to do the rest of our time together is this. Who do you know who needs to hear this message? I have people in my own mind that I'm thinking of. Who do you know, who has God placed you near that need to hear this message? I want to be practical for a moment. Let's think about them. Could be a single person. Could be a group of people. You can close your eyes if you need to. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's even people in your own family. Who do you know who haven't tasted this joy in Christ Jesus? Who haven't experienced the love of a father like this? And I want you to think about them, picture them in your mind, and ask the question, if the gospel is true, if our Father in heaven did this through his Son for us, what should our response be? Do we conceal it? Do we restrain our lips? Do we hide the glad news of God's deliverance, his steadfast love for us in our hearts? not tell anybody about it? Or do we embrace that message like Paul and say, I don't account myself of any value, nor is precious to me, only the gospel of Jesus Christ. And are we waiting for an opportunity? I think this is often what I use to cop out. Are we waiting for, I'm just waiting for an opportunity. I've been praying for my street, the cul-de-sac over here, 137th for the last year and a half for the houses that are on there, the people that are on there, people I know, people I don't know, who don't know Christ Jesus. And I've been praying for them every single week. And I'm going to confess to you, I have not done all that I could. I have not done all that I could. Yesterday, I'm talking to my neighbor, and the man across our street, a few houses down, died. He has no friends, he has no family, no one in the world. And I will never be able to tell him the greatest news in the world. I've lost my chance to do that. As we close and take communion, I want you to consider the blood that was shed for us. Consider what we are doing in the act of communion as we trust in Christ and receive him in worship and communion. I want you to pray and ask God in your heart to be filled with such compassion for the people around you such overwhelming compassion that it completely overrides any fear of humiliation, any fear of rejection, any fear of being awkward, that God's 
love for these people would so fill our hearts that we would, our hearts would break for these people who need to hear this message. And I want you to think about these people that you have in your mind and plead with God how you might engage them with the gospel, whether it's inviting them to lunch, inviting them over coffee, whatever it might be, hearing their lives, their story, invest in these people. Love them. Don't make it a facade. Love them. They need to be loved. And when, in your loving of them, you see a crack in their soul where the gospel can fit in, and everyone's got it, you make a beeline for that crack, and you say, I've, I've actually got something that you might be interested in. And even if you're not, I want to tell you. And you refuse to conceal the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love you so much. You're such a good father. Every morning we get from you, every morning we wake up and we breathe, that is a gift from your hand. Every smile we've experienced this week, every joy we've experienced in eating food and feeling the warmth of the sun and feeling cool air in our lungs is a gift from the Father of lights given to the children of men, many of whom don't give you a single inch in their mind or hearts. And despite that, you pour out your love on us every morning. Paradise breaks open over this city when the sun comes up. And what have we done to deserve it, Father? You're so merciful and gracious, and the greatest act of mercy you've ever shown us is the gospel, what you did through Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago, penetrating human history and saying, I will not let this all go to hell. I will redeem it by taking on their sin and redeeming them, bringing them into reconciliation with me. I pray that we would feel the weight of that, Father, the weight of the message. We would see with the eyes of Paul what the gospel really is and that that seeing through the power of your Holy Spirit would give us a kind of boldness in love, in grace, to communicate your news, the greatest news in the world to the people who are around us, the people you've sovereignly put them there. They don't have anybody else. We're plan A, I pray that we would feel that. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. We would feel the weight of that and we would be pressed into loving the people around us and investing in their lives and saying, I, I want to be your friend. I want to know you. I don't care what you're into. I don't care, I don't care about the, the sins you've committed. I don't care what kind of lifestyle you live. I want to love you and I want to tell you about the greatest news in the world. Father, give us that heart. Give us compassion in our hearts. May we feel with your feeling about this world. May we see through the, the pierced hands of Christ Jesus this world that you have sent your son to die for, Father. May we feel that and see that in our bones. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.